One of the things I've been doing at home <clears throat> with Austin, or when I'm at home at night to do it, um, if I'm not, Chastity does it with him. Um, she picks up my slack all the time. But um, I try to. I have this uh, book of 25 Bible stories, and it is a book for Advent. And this book takes you from the creation to the fall of man to the redemption of Jesus. It takes you through all the major scenes of the Bible. And it really helps you understand why the birth of Jesus was so important. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because um, I, I want to say thank you to all of the, the teachers in here. Um, sometimes you may feel like maybe you're not accomplishing much. But as I sit here and I read these stories, and remember, they're not just stories about the birth of Christ. They're stories about creation. They're stories about the sin of man, what happened in the garden. I mean, they're, they're, they're stories from the Bible. And as me or Chastity sit there and read these stories to him, he stops us and he starts telling us things about the story that are not in the book. And so what I want to be able to say to you is you may not think you're accomplishing much, but when I go home to teach my child, he knows things that I have not even taught him yet. You know there's only one place that that can come from, right? That comes from what you are doing. And so I'm not just telling you that to blow your head up. I want you to know something. As your pastor, I am thankful for you. I am thankful for what I see in my son. And, and I am thankful for what God is doing in his life because one day, I'm, I'm a living testimony of this. One day God is going to take all that information and one day God is going to turn a light on with it. And one day it's going to change His life. It's going to change the way He relates to this world. And so I'm thankful for the people that invested in me, the Bible knowledge that I have today, and I'm thankful for the ones that are along my side that are investing in my child's life as well. So I thank you very much for that. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And as always, I know we stand a lot, but if you have the means and you're able, I would ask you to stand to give reverence to reading the Word of God. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests, all the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the, when they saw the star, 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered, his, offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and, all, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. You can be seated. And as you're seated, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and uh, before we go any further, we just want to thank you for, for your spirit this morning. We want to thank you for the way he opens our eyes to who you are, the way he glorifies Christ in our minds and in our hearts. And Father, thank you for helping us to truly be able to worship You because of what You've done for us. And, and, and Lord, there's no one else like You, only a holy God. Father, I come to You this morning and I ask You that as we get into Your Word that, Father, You would give us what we need from it. Father, this, I pray this Word would be a Word inspired by You. Father, I pray that we, we take whatever we receive from it and we apply it to our life, Father. And I pray that we leave here today... Uh, changed, changed to be more like You. Father, I pray that we leave here today just more in love with You. Father, I just pray that, Lord, we learn whatever lesson You would have us to learn from this today. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for the families of this church. Lord, so many that are struggling with sicknesses right now, so many of them that are struggling with various trials. Father, I just pray for our family. Father, I pray that... Um, God, that You would heal where healing is needed. Father, I pray that You would deliver where deliverance is needed. Father, I pray that You would give strength where strength is needed. Father, I thank You for tough times. I know that it is tough times that remind us that we need You. We cannot do this without You. We can do nothing. We have no control over anything without You. Father, I thank You for trials, but I ask You, God, that this would be a time that Lord, families cling closer to You than they ever have, and I pray, God, that, Lord, You would just help us through these times. Father, You be with us this morning. This is all about You. We're here for You. We're here to glorify You. I pray You'd glorify Your name, glorify Your Son this morning. Father, we ask You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to um, look at our second lesson in our Advent series of the people of Christmas. Uh, last week we looked at the people of Christmas we talked about the people of promise. We talked about um, the people are a future people, that they're still, God is patiently waiting for them to come in. 
And so we saw that from the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who the people of promise were, the fact that God keeps His promises. And we saw that God is being patient and He's still waiting for these people of Christmas to come in. This morning, we focus on two other groups of people. The first group of people we're going to focus on are the wise men. We're going to look at what that actually means. The second group of people we're going to focus on are uh, is uh, King Herod, the king of the Jews, or the king of Israel at that time. And we're going to focus on King Herod's kingdom, his people. So we'll look at them as one group. And the, the, the way I titled this message this morning is very simple. It's the people of Christmas, the wise, and the foolish. And we're going to look at both of these groups of people. And again, our goal in every week that we do this is... What can we learn from these people? What can we learn so that it is said of us that we were a wise people? What can we learn that it will not be said of us that we were a foolish people? And so that's what we want to find out this morning. As I do this, I want you to try your best. I got a lot of history for you. I'm going to spend the first 10 minutes or so focusing on nothing but history. It's going to sound boring, and for some of you, it is going to be boring. I want to ask you to please try to listen, even if you don't pick it all up. I will make sure that you get the pieces that you need. And when you get these pieces, we're going to put them together, and I promise you, by the time we get to the first part of this Scripture, you are going to understand what Matthew was doing when he gave you this story of the birth of Christ. He's the only one that gives you this story. Luke gives you a whole completely other story. He don't even focus on this part of the story. And now remember, last week we started by understanding that Luke was writing this letter, or not Luke, Matthew was writing this letter to a Jewish audience, people who supposedly should have been expecting this coming Lord, right? This was an audience that had the promises of God, should have been waiting on these promises. And so he starts this thing out by helping them understand that this book is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. That's how he starts the book. And so he wants you to understand that he is going, trying to prove to a Jewish, Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited promised king, the son of David that has been promised that his throne will last forever. He is the king of kings. This is very important that you understand that this morning because everything Matthew writes from here on out, the reason he picks the stories he picks is so that you see the evidence that Jesus is the true King. And there is no other King except the one who has been born, the King of the Jews. With that being said, let's begin today with our wise men. Now you notice when we read our translation in this, it says in verse 1, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the King, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. What you need to understand this morning is that this word that we translate wise men is not actually a word that the Greek would have said wise men. 
But because of the tradition of this word that we find in the Greek, and because we don't have a word that translates to that word today, they chose to put the translation wise men in here. And so we want to ask the question, who are these people that the Bible would say to us today, they are wise men? Who are they? Well, here's the problem. We don't have a lot of information about them. We don't have a lot of biblical information about them. But there are actually many historians that were back, I'm going to take you back to one as far as 484 B.C. And I'm going to show you that he actually has some things to say about this group of people and the word that we get our translation from. He had a lot to say about who these people were. And then there are other historians that I'm going to show you that were Greek or Roman historians that you're going to find out that we can collect a lot of information and at least come to an understanding of what kind of people they were and what their purpose was. Now listen, we've all seen that there were three of them in the nativity or we think that and they come down because there are three gifts. We don't know that. We see them in the nativity pulling their camels behind them. You're going to find out that that's probably not true either. You're also going to find out that it was probably a very large army that came with this group of wise men. And so I want you to wipe out your picture that you have in the nativity scenes of who these wise men are. And I want you to recreate that picture with the evidence that we find this morning. So let's begin. First off, the word from which we translate into wise men is actually a Greek word that is pronounced Magoi, M-A-G-O-I. That's the word that's actually used right here. It is not wise men in the Greek, but there's a reason why they translate it this way here in the New Testament. And so this word is a word that typically means a sorcerer, a magician, a wizard, an oriental scientist, This was somebody that many times in the Old Testament when we see the same people, that the Old Testament will translate it magicians. Or the Old Testament may translate it soothsayers is what it it may translate it as. But it still goes back to the original word. And so we're going to find out exactly what this word stood for and who these people were. In the book of the histories, it was written by a... A Greek, uh, uh, no it wasn't a Greek, yes he was. He was a Greek historian, his name was Herodotus. Now again, you don't need to remember all this, just collect the information, okay? The reason I'm giving you this information is because if anybody goes home and listens to this online, I want you to be able to click the pause button, get on Google and go, here's the guy, I'm going to give you the book, I'm going to give you the chapter, I'm going to give you the section, and I'm going to give you the verse so that you can go back and read historians if you want to. I spent this week, my mind right now is just almost burnt. I spent hours upon hours this week studying theologians of our time, studying Greek historians of old, studying Roman historians of old, just trying to collect all the data that I could to come up with who these guys were. And we come up with that. But this guy, Herodotus, he was an ancient historian. He was actually born in the Persian Empire in 484 B.C. That's several years before Christ is born, if you don't know that. 
484 years to be exact. So he goes back a long ways to tell us a little bit more about this Magi that we can trace it back a long distance. He is often referred to as the father of history. The reason I tell you that is because I want you to understand his credentials. He was not... He was not known as a liar or somebody that you couldn't trust. He was a very accurate historian from this time period. And he wrote a lot on the Greco-Persian Wars. In his book, The Histories, section 1.101, this is what he says. He says that the Magi are a specific tribe of people in the Median nation. The Medes were a very large people group. Just a little bit of history, you'll remember that the Babylonians came in and they conquered Israel and took Israel into captivity. If you know some Bible history, you know that, right? Well, before them were the Assyrians. The Assyrians actually came in and conquered the Medes first. So the Assyrians conquered the Medes. Then the Babylonians came in. They conquered the Babylonians and the Medes. Then the Persians came in. They conquered the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Medes that were all mixed together. And then the Jews were also conquered in the midst of all this, beginning with the Babylonians, but they continued in this line of captivity for the most part. And so it goes on and on. After the Persians were the Greeks. Anybody remember Alexander the Great? If you studied any history at all, you remember Alexander the Great. He came in right before the birth of Christ. He conquered these, um, these empires, and the Greek empire became a major world power. And then after the Greeks comes the Romans. But in between there, there was this little group called the Parthians that actually became a Parthian-Persian empire. Hold on. You don't need to know all that. Just want to have you a little bit of Bible knowledge in here. But here's what he said. He said, The Magi are a specific tribe of people in the Medes or in the Median nation. They were a people group that was closely aligned with the Persians. He says that the Magi were the priestly tribe in the Medes people. You know how the children of Israel had 12 tribes, right? And out of those 12 tribes, you had one tribe that was a priestly tribe. And the job of that tribe was to take care of the religion, of the godly things of the the entire tribes of Israel. And well, here you have that this is what the Magi's responsibility was. In the Medes nation, they were sorcerers. Their primary studies were astronomy and astrology. Astronomy being the science of the stars, the science of the planets. Astrology being the superstitions of the stars, the superstitions of the planet. But they used all that in their religion and this is the way that they practice things like magic. They practice things like soothsaying or fortune telling, if you will. And so this is the kind of people that they were back in 484 B.C. and even before then. And so many historians back up this information, not just Herodotus. So we know this is a fact. Everywhere we see the Magi in history, they are key government officials. Everywhere we see the Magi in history, they are advisory councils to the kings. So this is a very high-standing group, all right? So keep that in mind. The Magi were priests who dedicated their lives to the ministry of their religion. Now you really see this group come on the scene in the Bible as well. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 39 verse 3. 
In Jeremiah chapter 39 verse 3, you are going to have the first place that we actually see them come on to the scene. It says, Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal, Sar, Ezar, <laughs> Samgar, Nebal, I'm, I'm probably not saying these right at all, but y'all just stay with me. Sarsechim, the Rabsaris, Nagurbal, Sar, Ezar, the, here's the key, the Rab what? Mag. Now, Rab basically meant the chief, the top dog. And so what you have to understand here is this guy he just named is a Magi and he is actually on the king's council when Babylonian comes in and captures the Jews. Or when Babylon comes in and captures the Jews. And so he is a chief Magi that is actually part of the king's council. Now you see them again in Daniel chapter 2 verse 10. So go with me to there. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 10 he says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any, what? Magician. And what you need to understand here is he's still talking about the same group of people, of any Magi. Because remember, the Magi focused on fortune-telling, dream interpreters is what their job was. They, they were uh, studying the, the study of the stars and things that were going to happen and take place. And the king of Babylon comes in here and he has a bad dream. And he wants somebody to tell him what this dream means. And so he calls his chief counsel. He calls all the people that have the ability to do this and they come in and he asks them, please interpret this dream for me, but if you lie to me and I don't think you're telling me the truth, he says, I'm going to tear you limb for limb and I'm going to lay your entire house to ruins. And then he tells the same group of people, I'm not going to tell you what my dream is because... If I'm to know that you're telling me the truth or not, then you tell me first what my dream is, and then you tell me what the interpretation is. This is their answer. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. And so what he understands here, or what the Magi understand is, we can't do this. We don't have this ability. But then Daniel comes in and he actually interprets the dream. But I want you to notice first uh, their response in verse 11. This is their response. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. But then in verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the, and here we have it translated as wise men, but we're talking about the same group of people, the Magi, okay? The wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so the king has said, okay, away with you all. But then Daniel steps on the scene. Y'all remember Daniel, right? Famous for the lion's den. Daniel steps on the scene. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48... This is what happens. Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel interprets the dream. He comes in and he tells the king, this was your dream, and describes it to a T. And then he says, this is the interpretation. And then he begs the king, please don't destroy 
the wise men. He saves their lives, all of them. And because of this, the, the king puts Daniel... Let's read it. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And he made him chief prefect or the chief governor, the chief leader over all the what? So here's what you see. This Magi, way back before the birth of Christ ever takes place, they have always been the king's counselors. They have always been the advisors. They've always been key government officials. They've always been top dogs. Here, they're almost wiped off the, the map. And Daniel comes in, saves their lives, and because he saves their lives, the king now says, Okay, Daniel, you are now the leader of the Magi. Now, y'all know the story of Daniel. He was thrown in the lion's den, and yet... Was he destroyed? No. Y'all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, right? They threw them in the fiery furnace. Were they destroyed? This group of people have been yoked up with a leader now, and they have sit here and they've watched the true God and what the true God does. This is a group of people that give their life to the religion of their ministry. And now they have a leader. Do you think Daniel did not share his faith with these guys? This group has just been introduced to the God of the Old Testament. They've just seen Him perform many different things. And they know the Old Testament prophecies. But we don't stop there. Let's go a little bit further. So here's the thing about it. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 26, if you remember from our Revelation series... Daniel gets a vision from Gabriel. You remember that? And this vision tells him the timeline of events that are going to take place. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. If you remember the study we did, we also know that the correct translation for this is 70 weeks of years. A week of years being how many years? Seven years, right? So what he's saying is 70 weeks of years, so 70 times 7, 490. I'm not going to get into all that again this morning. If you want to go back to Revelation series, you can find this. But 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both prophet and vision, to anoint a most holy place. All of those things are going to happen in this 490 years. But then he goes here, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the Word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now again, he's talking about seven weeks of years. You can do the math on that. And then he says, Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. I'm not going to go through all this again. Here's what you need to understand. Daniel had a timeline. Daniel didn't know the exact day, but Daniel had a timeline. And Daniel knew that the Messiah was coming during this time. And Daniel, the one who gets the vision, is now the leader of the Magi, the wise men that are coming to see him in Jerusalem when he is born. And so they know all this. It's important information. Keep all the pieces together. And for the next 500 years, just under 500 for the next 500 years or so, 
Basically what you have is all of the Jews and all of the Persians, all of the Babylonians, all the Medes. You have all this mixed group of people that intermingle and stay together for the next 500 years as other people join in as well. And so you have this influence in this group that they know all this Old Testament stuff. Several years pass by. Again, stay with me. Try not to get too bored. Several years pass by. The Persian Empire is defeated by Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire comes in. But a people group from the Persian Empire influence rose up and began to conquer. Their name were the Parthians. The Parthians. Remember this name. Here's another Greek historian. Strabo, he was born in 64 B.C. So let's move forward in time. We're almost at the birth of Christ. He says this about the Magi. Quote, The council of the Parthians, this empire that's rose up in the middle of this, the council of the Parthians consists of two groups. One of the royal line of king's kinsmen, That's the first group. The first group is the royal line of the king's kinsmen. And this council of Parthians consists of the other group being the wise men slash magi from both groups of which the kings were appointed. The Parthian Persian Empire got their kings appointed by the magi. You got two groups in this council. The first group are the people that can be king. They're the kinsmen of the king. Then you have this other group, the Magi, that have arose to such a place of standing that now nobody becomes king in Persia unless these guys appoint him as king. Now keep that in mind. So here's what you can say about these guys. These Magi are kingmakers. That's what they do. This is their business. Their business is to look at the candidates for king and to select the one that is worthy to be king. And without their selection process, without their approval, no one becomes king in the East. Keep that in mind. Now, so the Magi have become such a powerful group that by the time of the birth of Christ, they were the group that appointed kings. No one became king in the east unless the Magi appointed you. And again, these are several historians outside of the Bible that have confirmed this together. This is not misinformation. If you want to go back and find it, you can find it in uh, Strabo's book, um, The Geography of Strabo, Book 11, Chapter 9, Section 3. You go read that and you'll get what I just told you so that you know that I'm not just coming up with this stuff off the top of my head. That's where it comes from. And so these guys are a very powerful group that are king makers. And here's what's funny about it. Jerusalem and Judea lay right in the middle of these these empires that are at war. You had the Parthian Persian Empire. You had the Greek Empire. you, you, You had the Roman Empire. And all these empires are looking right here. And the Parthians, you can go back, they were the ones that actually appointed the rulers in Jerusalem right up until Christ was born. 
But somewhere around 37 BC, uh, yeah, somewhere around 37 BC, there was a guy named Herod, Herod the Great. Herod wanted out from under the Parthian dynasty. Herod wanted to be king. And so Herod turns around and he goes and gets Roman support and he comes back with a Roman army and he drives out and kills anyone associated with the Parthian people. Now remember, the Parthians were the empire with the kingmakers. This king of Parthia did not want to do anything about it. Really didn't care about this little spot. He laid back. The Magi were not happy about this. They saw it as a weakness in their king. Long story short, the Magi, and you can find all of this in history, the Magi go and they depose their king. His name is Phraates IV. They take him out of office. He's gone. And now they're looking for a new king. Herod has come back in and he has took over Jerusalem and the Romans have appointed him as the king over the Jews. Now there's a few things you need to know about this Herod. Herod fought and clawed to maintain his power in this place. He killed anyone he felt threatened him and didn't help him maintain his throne. He assassinated them. He got rid of them. Any potential rival leader, he killed. His father-in-law, which was the Parthian ruler before him, when he came in with the Romans, he killed him. He killed his wife. Actually, they believe he had somewhere around ten wives and he killed several of his wives. He killed his three sons... Murdered him. He killed... I could go on and on. Here's what was said about him. Here's some more historians, and this is what historians outside of the Bible said about Herod the Great. It was said of Herod that he was one, quote, prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. He ordered the slaughter of all baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem. Did you catch that when we read it in the Bible just a minute ago? Well-known fact that this is what he did. He, he would go to any extreme to make sure that his rule and his reign was not threatened. But now listen. <clears throat> Macrobius is another Roman writer, and he said in his book, Saturnalia, S-A-T-U-R-N-A-L-I-A, that's the book that he wrote, this is what he said, quote, When it was heard that as part of the slaughter of the boys up to two years old, Herod had ordered his own son to be killed. During that time, he ordered his own son. This was the third one. He'd already killed two before this. Now he orders the third one to die during the same time. When it was heard that Herod did this, Emperor Augustus remarked, It is better to be Herod's pig than his son. This was a reference of how Herod, as a Jew, would not kill pigs, but had three sons and many others killed. It's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. This guy was a ruthless ruler. Ruthless. There was no limit to what he would do to maintain his power and his authority. And so, listen to this. When Herod was about to die, and he died one year or two years or something like that after the birth of Jesus Christ. It would have had to have been at least two. It was just a few years after Jesus was born, Herod the Great died. When he was about to die, he ordered all the prestigious people of Jerusalem to be captured and killed. 
Anybody that had a prestigious title, anybody that was a high standing person in Jerusalem, when he was about to die, he ordered all these people to be collected and they were to be killed on the day that he died. So what's the question you think the collectors were asking? Why? Here's his answer. He said, when I die, no one will mourn for me. So when I die, kill them, so there will be mourning in Jerusalem at my death. This is the kind of guy that you're dealing with right here. Now here's another fact that you need to understand. So remember, Jerusalem lies in the mist here. Parthian and Persian Empire where the Magi appointed kings used to be the ones that appointed these rulers. Now Herod has come in and usurped the throne, brought the Roman army in with him, pushed them out. And now it has been some... Um, how many years? 37 years. It's been 37 years that Herod has been fighting and clawing to maintain his power and killing everybody and everything. 37 years have passed since he's been in reign. And now in comes this group of people. Now another thing you need to understand is historians say that Parthians had a heavy army. They came in on Persian studs, Persian steeds. They came in on beautiful Persian horses, not camels. And these horses were ironclad. And they traveled with an army from, per from Parthian. And Herod's Roman support is not in Jerusalem at this time. Herod's Roman army has left the scene there out on a Roman mission somewhere. And all of a sudden, we've got this Parthian army coming in with the kingmakers, the Magi, the wise men. And they drive into town. What do you think Herod does? Well, let's read the verse. Let's see if all this context makes any sense to you now. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Now Matthew wants you to understand this, right? All these details are important. Behold, Magi, kingmakers, the ones that appoint kings, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews. Now think about their message right here. They're riding into town with their army on their horses and they don't go to Herod and say, Hey Herod, excuse me, where has the, the new baby boy that will one day be the king of the Jews, where, where has he been born? That's not their message. They ride into town and literally they are voicing throughout all Jerusalem with their army, Where is the one who has not been made king, not the one that we are coming here to make king, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now listen, let's keep reading. <clears throat> For we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. Now another thing you need to understand about when we translate star, we literally think about a star. Now John MacArthur, I love the way that he explains this, it makes sense. He actually says that this is not necessarily a star. This word comes from a word that could mean a blazing light. A blazing light. And here's what he believes it is, and I agree with him. Luke chapter 2 verse 9. Look at what Luke chapter 2 verse 9 says. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I may not have gave you that one, Nathan. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 9. Sometimes I don't write down all the scriptures and give to him, so y'all, Nathan does a great job trying to keep up with me. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What shone around them? And it shone where? Around them. And they were filled with great fear. Now ain't it interesting that the way the shepherds were announced the birth of Christ was that they saw a bright light that shone around them. And so what, this is the same word that is used back here. And what John MacArthur believes, and I agree with him, is that when they saw the star, it wasn't necessarily they saw a particular star because they were studiers of the stars. It wasn't that. They were the ones. Now everybody didn't see it like the shepherds saw it. And everybody didn't see it like the wise men saw it. But they were the ones that God caused His glory to shine for them. And they saw His star or His blazing light when it rose. And now they've come into Jerusalem because listen, if you're looking for the king of the Jews, where's he going to be? Jerusalem, right? But what you'll notice is that this star, look what it says, for we saw His star. They didn't say, look, there's His star. They come into Jerusalem and they say, listen, we saw the star. What does that tell you? The star's not there right now, is it? The blazing light's not there. They're in Jerusalem because they're trying to figure out, we know what it means, we know the Scriptures, but we don't see Him, we can't find Him. And then look at what happens in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod troubled? What could possibly trouble Herod at this time? Herod is king of the Jews, Roman appointed, not born. He don't have his Roman army. Now here comes this Parthian army in here. Now if, Rome, if Herod had his Roman army as ruthless as he is, what do you think we would be see, reading about right here right now? War. You'd be reading about war right now. But instead, Herod has to play a little bit here. He has to put on a good show. And he says, hey, I want to worship him too. But he's troubled. He's troubled. And not just him. All Jerusalem is troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him. They know. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. In other words, they know the Scriptures. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And so here's what you see here. I'll go through my points very quickly. Here's what you learn from the people of Christmas. Wise people give their lives to seeking God. And those who seek Him, find Him. Foolish people, on the other hand, use the Scriptures too. Notice, these chief priests and Pharisees, they knew. The scribes here, they knew the Scriptures just like the wise men knew them. But the foolish people, on the other hand, use the Scriptures to fulfill their own desires, not God's desires. And how many times have we done it in our life? You know, we come here week after week and we listen to the Word of God. We study it on Wednesday nights and... And, um, and we're okay with it as long as it agrees with us. 
But what do you do the moment you're in a situation in your life and God says, this is what I desire and it ain't what you desire? What do you do? I'm out. Here's what I want you to understand. Wise people, they search the Word of God and they find God and they listen to God and they surrender to God. Foolish people know the Scriptures too. Would you believe me today? I know you would if I told you that the churches today are full of fools. The wise men who are not even Jews come to the church. The world has just came to the church and said, Hey, where's your new king? And you know what the church said? I know what the scriptures say, but if we find him, we'll kill him. How many times has God said something to you in your life that you didn't agree with and instead of surrendering, you'd rather kill Him? You'd rather kill Him. And here's what I want you to understand. We, got, we, we, we don't want to end this thing as fools. But there will be many church people in the last days that when Jesus comes back, I don't care they went to church their whole life. Every time the doors were open, they'll be fools. Because they know the Scriptures. They've been in Sunday school. Man, they know the Word of God. But the truth of the matter is, they never use the Scriptures to let them seek God. You know why God gave you the Scriptures? So you could know who He is. God gave you the Scriptures so that you could know what He requires. And our job is to surrender to Him, not to come to church. Your job is to surrender to Him and use His Scriptures. And if you are wise, then you will use the Scriptures to find God and to follow God. Second point, very quickly, the wise are watching and waiting. Look again in verse 2. He said, where is He who has been born King of the Jews? The wise men have been looking for Him. They've been waiting on Him probably for 400 something years. Probably back when Daniel told them, Hey guys, He's coming. And I bet you from that point on, these guys, or at least part of them, started looking for Him. The wise men are watching and waiting. And do you know when Jesus told the majority of His parables, you know how they would end? You therefore must stay awake and be ready for the Son of Man comes at an hour that you don't know and you don't expect. Wise people are going through this life right now, watching and waiting, understanding that He could come before the doors open on the church and you get out of here today. I know it's been a long time. Guys, He is coming. He's coming back. And you are going to give an account for all the things done in your body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. Wise people know that. And wise people are waiting on that. And fools are living their lives loving this world. Loving it. And I hope you do love it. Because it's going to be your reward. And it's going to be all the enjoyment that you are ever going to get for eternity. And I hope it's good. Wise people, they're watching, they're waiting, and they're giving their lives and living their lives for good. i got one more point and I promise I'm done. Wise people give God the best they have to give. 
Wise people give God the best they have to give because they see Him for who He is. Go over to verse um, 10. Start there. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child. I wish I had more time to preach. With Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. You ever offered Jesus a gift? Here's what they offered him. First off, they fell down before him and worshipped him. In other words, they offered him their surrender, right? These are the king makers. Listen, guys, listen, please. You've got to catch this. Nobody, this is the group. You don't become king unless I say you are king. Y'all get that? And yet this group comes and to the one who has been born. I didn't say you could be king. And yet when they get there, you know what they do? They hit their knees. They hit their knees and they say, you are the king and we surrender to you. Now remember, at this time, they're actually looking for a new king. I'm sure they're probably in their physical sense hoping we're going to get ready to take this guy back to Parthian and these Romans we're not going to have any trouble with anymore. But that wasn't the kind of king he was coming to be, right? And so... When they humble themselves before Him, they give Him three gifts. They give Him gold. At that day and time, gold was the most precious thing on this earth. Today it kind of is too as far as worldly things go. They gave Him gold. They gave Him frankincense. Frankincense was a gift that was only used in the worship of God. It was actually burnt as incense in the Holy of Holies. And so this was a gift that they burned to God Himself. And then there was myrrh. And that was a spice or a, um, a perfume, if you will, that mostly was used in burials. Actually used to anoint the dead body. Now you can take it. I don't have time to preach this morning on all that. You ought to be able to take some of that and, and go through it. But the point being is this. These things were the best for the best. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. Does God get your best? Or does God get what you have left over as long as you feel okay? Does God get your best? Or do the worldly things that you love get your best? Wise people give God their best because they see Him for who He is. Fools... They give God the leftovers. They give God whatever I have left. As long as everything else is done, I don't have anything else going on. I don't have no big buck to kill. As long as I don't have a big fish to catch. As long as I don't have a golf tournament to go to. As long as I don't have uh, kids. As long as I don't have... As long as the rest of this world is taken care of. Are y'all with me? Then God can have what I have left. Can I say that one day a proverb will be written about that and it will begin, Thou fool. Thou fool. You don't see God for who He is. That's the problem. God help me, I need more time. God, I need more time.
Time, 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 time. One day, people, if God don't come back, one day people will read about you, maybe. People will read about this church, the history of it, what it's done. And my question is, is your future generations going to look back and see you as wise? Or are they going to look back and see you as foolish? Because let me tell you something. Herod and all Jerusalem, they thought they were wise. Man, they knew the Scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They went to church. They prayed three times a day. They prayed more often than you do. And yet, they were fools. They were fools. I pray that when you come in here and you hear the Scriptures, that you are wise and you use those Scriptures to find God and find what God wants from you. And you surrender to Him and you follow Him. I pray that when you come in here that you will give God the best that you have to give. Not just in here. Let's take it out of this thing. When you live every day and you go to your job, I pray that you're giving God the best that you have to give. And I pray you see Him for who He is and everything you do revolves around that relationship. And that's how you live your life. And I pray that when people look back on you, that they will be able to say of G. Will Banks, he was a wise man. Not because they translate his name as G. Will Banks, but maybe they translate it once a wise man did this. And I hope that they don't translate me and say, once Kevin was the pastor of the children of, of Christ, and yet when Christ came, they were all troubled. <laughs> greatly troubled because they didn't want a new king. They didn't want this king.